The Guardian. Hi, I'm Jason Solomons and you're listening to Sounds Jewish. In this month's podcast, we head on down to the Holy Land to mark Israel's 60th anniversary. 60 years of hard times, 60 years of blood, 60 years of trying to make home to ourselves. Finally, you can see, we, we got it, we have it. Plus, lifting the lid on taboos inside Israel's Orthodox community, we take a look at the country's only Orthodox film school. And we've got an interview about the melting pot of 21st century Israel with Israel's champion of world music, Idan Reichel. Now, there might be some in Britain's Jewish community who'll say that The Guardian won't be getting out the bunting and the party bags to celebrate Israel's 60th birthday. But how wrong they would be, because here at Sounds Jewish, we're marking its 60th birthday with a falafel-like mix of ingredients, a rich combination of politics, religion and culture. With the help of Guardian columnist and self-confessed Middle East obsessive Jonathan Friedland and the Jewish Chronicle's foreign editor, Daniela Peled, and editor of the paper's very impressive Israel at 60 supplement, welcome to both of you. Daniela, that came out uh, just recently. Uh, a remarkable, uh, the dense and kind of comprehensive survey it was too. Congratulations. Thank you. How on earth did you assemble such a thing? Well, it was, it was difficult choosing what to leave out. They've done a lot of things in 60 years, those Israelis. <laughs> yes, they have. <laughs> and you managed to cover it extremely widely as well. Did you have a, a particular thrust that you wanted to get in? Is there a certain area that you wanted to cover, particularly that you felt was more reflective uh, for a UK audience? Well, my project was to tell the history through the eyes of the people who were there, the big people, the little people, and also reflect how the history of the last 60 years of Israel has been the history of the formation of Palestinian identity too. Now, Jonathan, you've just come back from a trip there with your whole family, the first family trip out there, I believe. That's right. It was the very first time the children had seen uh, Israel. They go to a Jewish school, so they had a kind of mental image of Israel, I think, from uh, stories and, you know, from the... Passover Haggadah, you know, that they have an image of it in the abstract, but for them to see the real country, uh, I think they liked it a lot, actually. I was very pleased to see it through their eyes. And, and how is the, the mood in Israel as it, uh, you know, peaks at the 60th birthday? What's the mood like? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell just from a, a couple of weeks as a, as a tourist. You w- wouldn't want to make too bigger judgment, but I thought they are gearing up for it. There was less of the, um, there was a quite a gloomy atmosphere. I remember when I was there for the, around the 50th anniversary in 1998, a lot of uh, angst and soul searching. This time I get the feeling that there's a lot of pride about how well the country's doing economically. It is amazing, 4% growth every year, year after year. And there's all this high-tech industry everywhere. They're very proud of that. In their own individual private lives, I think people feel very comfortable and very successful. But what has gone, really, in all kinds of areas, is the sort of sense of the collective. Uh, that is not, hasn't vanished, but it's, it's receding all the time, I think, in Israel. It's a long time in politics. It's a long time in, in founding a country as well, Daniela. I was just going to say that for most Israelis, Independence Day hasn't got very much to do with Zionism and it is all about going out with the family and having a barbecue. Zionism itself doesn't really figure that much. Uh, well, let's find out exactly what Israelis do make of Israel at 60. My name is Idan and I am a student. I'm going to celebrate as much as I can, to go to party, to make some barbecue, to do the best time of my life. 60, 58, it doesn't matter as long as we have a country. I am a Holocaust survivor as a child and we arrived here more or less nearly 60 years ago. It was a dream which is fulfilled. 
you would like it perhaps a lot better than it's now and in a safer condition but uh, this is what we have and this is what we fight for and this is what we hoped for my name is Eden Gross and I have a help shop in Tel Aviv. I don't feel like celebrating. I feel very bad with what I see. And we keep on killing each other, keep on killing each other. To me, to everybody in Israel, uh, 60 years of uh, hard times, 60 years of blood, 60 years of trying to make home to ourselves. Finally, you can see, we, we got it. We have it, finally. How do I feel now? First of all, I believe that we must live together with the Palestinians side by side in some way. Well, it just actually it's another day. I treat Israel as, a, as the present. You know, I don't measure it in years and I don't care how long it's been. I just want it to keep on being afterwards. So talk to me like, you know, when it's 100 years old. So maybe I'll have something more important to say. A mosaic of emotions there from Israel. And we heard there from an Israeli woman who despairs of the unresolved conflict with the Palestinians. It does seem never-ending. And, Daniela, before we heard her from all those voices, you did say that the, the, the history of Israel is entwined with the, the history of Palestine. Do you think there will be a resolution as we move into the next 40 years? Well, I don't want to put a time limit on it, but I've never heard of a conflict that wasn't resolved. And I think it's a bit arrogant of us to think that this particular conflict is so special and so unique that it's not going to be resolved. The parameters are there. There's the problem getting to the actual end of it. But it's probably true that there hasn't been a conflict in history that hasn't been solved eventually. The point is that some of them have been solved in such a way that one side is deeply unhappy about the resolution. You know, they lost their country in the process you can think of or one side just had to go for complete surrender or defeat. And that's the difficult thing here because when I heard one of the women we were hearing there on the streets of Israel saying, ask me in 40 years, I think it's a genuine question whether there will be an Israel in 40 years, an Israel as we understand it. You know, the, you've got two peoples live there. They're more or less reaching numeric parity. And unless they live in two states, eventually it's going to just be yeah. one state. And then that's certainly not the Israel that people talk about and think of. One of the things that will change this situation, actually, will be when diasporas themselves move. That did happen in the Northern Irish case. Irish Americans just blew the whistle and said, we've had enough of it. When that happens, when Jewish Americans in particular, but Jews here in Britain, start saying, you know what, we've had enough of it. This occupation has gone on 41 years. Uh, it's enough. It's, uh, not, it's not in Israel's best interest. Then I think they'll be changed. So I think the diaspora is way more important than this than probably it ever realises. Well, to mark Israel's anniversary year, we've been running a Voices of Israel series featuring a wide range of Israelis. In a moment, we'll be hearing from a Palestinian citizen of Israel who refers to 1948 as the Nakba, or the catastrophe. But for now, let's hear from someone at the other end of Israel's political spectrum, a settler who describes himself as belonging to the national religious camp. Here, Yoram reflects on everyday life in the occupied territory of the West Bank, or as he now calls it, the biblical land of Samaria. According to our belief, we think we, we should live there. This is uh, our um, homeland and this is where uh, all of the uh, Bible stories took place, Judea and Samaria. This is why we think uh, it must be part of uh, the state of Israel. And we will be very, very strict in our um, position that uh, we are not going to give up these uh, very, very uh, precious parts of our uh, ancient homeland to the Palestinians. Uh, we were very, very disappointed about this uh, misengagement from uh, Gaza Strip. 
We thought from the beginning it will be a disastrous action. Probably we will have to uh, conquer the Gaza Strip again in order to remove the uh, terrorist military uh, groups which are flourishing so much over there today in, uh, in Gaza Strip. Well, that's a pretty sobering account there from a West Bank settler in Samaria. He says pretty clearly, Jonathan, there, that the disengagement from Gaza was a huge mistake. Do ordinary Israelis still believe that, or are they largely supportive of what happened there despite the current unrest? I think you'd be hard-pushed to find any mainstream Israeli who says, actually, it would be a good thing to have settlements back in Gaza and send soldiers back into Gaza permanently, uh, and those 8,000 settlers should be rehoused there. I think most people agree that it was it didn't make any sense for, like, for just in the military effort for soldiers to be put in there guarding these handful, these sprinklings of settlers. So I don't think anyone would want to turn the clock back. What what, he, what that settler their voice is, is the feeling that it was done the wrong way. And that actually, funnily enough, ends up converging with a place which the sort of peace camp and the left are in, which is to say, look, withdrawing from territory is a good idea and fine, but you've got to do it with an agreement. The mistake in Gaza, and you could say the same about the withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000, was that it was unilateral, that you just decided one day to up sticks and leave the other side with no even uh, handshake Mm. with the other side. And that is partly the reason why you've still got hostilities going on. That was an argument made at the time. um, And uh, unfortunately, I think events have proved it right. And it means there's no mood at all now uh, for any kind of territorial concessions unless they're in the context of a fully signed, sealed, delivered agreement. Well, within those 967 borders of Israel, one in five, or 20%, for those who can't do maths, of the population are Israeli Arabs. One of the historic Arab towns is, of course, Jaffa, close to Tel Aviv, within walking distance. One of the great walks of the world, I find that, going between Tel Aviv and Jaffa. And so here, in the second of our Voices of Israel pieces, this month we hear from Shams Kaboni, an Israeli Arab woman who describes her dual attachment to Jaffa and to Tel Aviv. It's very close to Tel Aviv, so it's very influenced from Tel Aviv. On the other hand, um, they, they try to keep their Palestinian uh, nature uh, inside the, this uh, you know, Western uh, way of life. It was very difficult for me to find an apartment in Tel Aviv as a Palestinian because I don't hide my identity when I go, although my name originally is Revital. Revital is the Hebrew name. My father gave me an Israeli name just to be easier for me to fit in this uh, society. But uh, when the more the more times goes, I uh, I'm more aware of my Palestinian identity, and I I do have an identity crisis. So. Um, uh, to solve this identity crisis, uh, I uh, gave myself a Palestinian name, Shams, and uh, I felt the difference in attitude towards me from Israelis who, of course, not the leftists, uh, but uh, because they, they, they liked Shams more than Revital. But, uh, you know, the average Israeli, uh, when, I, when I'm revital and totally revital, I'm more accepted. And when I become Shams, uh, the Palestinian uh, background uh, woman uh, who is totally uh, Israeli and westernized, but uh, Palestinian and not wanted. It was very, very disappointing for me because I'm so Israeli, I'm so like them. I used to wear, when I was a little kid, I used to wear blue and uh, white and go with them to the parties, but now I can't do it. 
An unusual account there from Shams. She describes a dual identity. Is that common amongst most Israeli Arabs, Daniela? Yeah, I was having exactly this discussion with an Israeli Arab filmmaker a couple of weeks ago, who, by the way, preferred to be known as a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Secular, educated, liberal, speaks perfect Hebrew in public, speaks perfect Arabic at home, but does not feel part of the society and can't. She's not going to stand up and sing the Hatikva, the Israeli national anthem on Day of Independence because it refers to the, the Jewish home and the Jewish dream, the Jewish heart. There isn't anything for her in that. But Israel, uh, as much as uh, as London is a multicultural place, uh, will the Nakba allowed to be celebrated alongside the 60th anniversary of Israel? I, th- I don't think that's uh, unreasonable to expect. It's already happened in Israel that documentaries about the Nakba have been shown on Independence Day. Israel is still a very young country. People are very, very defensive. Given time and a sense of maturity and a sense of security and safety... I think it can encompass all of those things. And I don't think, funnily enough, the Jewish dream will be fully fulfilled and recognised until it's able to see and look in the eye the consequence and the price that was paid. I'm of the view that says, admit the price that was paid, but then say to the world, tragically, it was necessary, uh, given the place the Jews were in after the calamity of their own, the... Uh, slaughter in the Holocaust. So I think you have to, you can be clear-eyed and honest about this. It doesn't actually uh, compromise the moral need that Israel had 60 years ago to admit that in order to implement that moral need, there were terrible uh, suffering for other people involved. Any visit to Israel, especially Jerusalem, will quickly tell you that the country's religious community is growing, and growing rapidly. But how much do the avowedly secular Israelis know about the issues and taboos that affect this visible but little-known community? This could all be changing, though, with the growing success of Israel's only orthodox film school, Ma'aleh, based in Jerusalem, and the hit TV show A Touch Away, a Romeo and Juliet tale of forbidden love between an orthodox girl and a secular young Russian immigrant. Our reporter in Israel, Dina Kraft, went to take a look at the phenomenon and began by asking the film school's director, Netta Ariel, why there was a need for a religious film school in the first place. I believe that the religious community here in Israel is part of the Israeli society. And the people had to hear the voice of these people. I think that Ma'ale raised uh, artists here that uh, bring uh, these special stories, special issues, conflict that we have inside the religious community. And it's really, uh, they're doing a great job here. My name is Katie Green. I'm head of public relations here at the Ma'ale Film School. We've had a number of taboo subjects here where a sort of Pandora's box was opened up. So here at the school, some very fearless students have addressed issues of sexuality which are not openly discussed in the Orthodox community. An example of this is a film called First Night, which is about a couple on their wedding night who have never previously touched one another and the difficulty of trying to get into bed together when there's been no previous physical contact and the couple undergo great difficulty in the first week of their marriage. This year, um, the new films were released just a few months ago, and we have our first gay film ever made at the school. Homosexuality is not discussed in the religious community. Um, Boys who come out in the religious community are more or less asked to leave the community and not to continue with religious life. And a young Ma'ale graduate who is gay himself made a film about the process of coming out in a yeshiva 
where you're in an all-male environment, where you're in love with one of the other students, but you're in an environment that is totally hostile to the concept of being a homosexual. He said that if he hadn't made the film, he would probably have committed suicide, that the film was a tremendous psychological journey for him. Um, and sometimes the responses from the religious community are a little angry if they feel we've crossed a red line. But we feel here that we don't prevent the students from making any films that they want to make. Einav is a first-year student. Learning here, uh, instead of in a non-religious school, first of all, it's problematic to, to do art when you're religious, generally. So it's hard. And, uh, and here you, are, you can be more open. And what, what, what kind of subjects would you like to explore in your, the films you'll do here? Uh, <laughs> well, um, first of all, uh, the fact that we get married in such a, in such a young age, it's, uh, it's very different. And uh, also um, uh, the fact that we live in Israel, and Israel is a complicated place, so a lot of themes come from this, uh, this place. Because these films go to... Jewish film festivals all over the world and non-Jewish film festivals. They take the religious community out to many places where religious life has never been seen. And we have found that audiences are tremendously interested in this world. So having become a successful film school and making films that go to the festivals, we're now beginning to discover that the films are a phenomenal cultural and educational asset and that we can use the films as a communication tool to bring religious and secular Jews together. I don't think anything else can help more than uh, the films. That's the thing today. The funny thing is that um, we have a lot of uh, Jewish uh, filmmakers outstate and they make films about the Holocaust and they make films, films about the situation in Israel. And it's really hard for us to look inside and do the same. And uh, it's the best tool we have. The surprise runaway success of Channel 2's A Touch Away, set in the religious community of B'nai Brak and dealing with a love affair between an ultra-Orthodox teenage girl and a young secular Russian immigrant, showed that secular Israelis were curious also to learn more about the other side of Israel according to his producer, Tzafrir Kochanovsky. I think we were very brave choosing the subject, and I think the people were, were, were fed up with stories about uh, love in Tel Aviv, you know. I think the Israeli society doesn't know anything about uh, uh, Orthodox. The fact that in our stereotype mind we think that Orthodox do not love, uh, and it's all like, you know, match, matchmaking and... and and we see a beautiful love between the parents of, of, of the girl uh, and even attraction. Um, so, so we really make people know better uh, the people who live next door. I mean, you know, Nebrak, it's like 10 minutes drive from Tel Aviv, but we know nothing about these people. We know nothing about their the, 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 the passion. I think the religious themselves realized that if they want to have more um, presence in our society and more power, they, will, they have to go into to communication and, and, and there are more writers and more directors who are religious. We like to, to, to portray um, small stories from different parts of society and we don't want to do it all the time about uh, the people from the big cities because Israel is not Tel Aviv.
Jonathan, you were recently in, in Jerusalem and obviously saw uh, this uh, this growing ultra-orthodoxy. Ultra um, did it scare you? What, how did your children react to it, first of all? Because they wouldn't have seen anything like that, even on the streets of Stoke Newington. Well, funnily enough, <laughs> living, living where we do in Stoke Newington kind of prepared them for it. I think they now think all places in the world, the men wear black suits and white shirts and uh, have Polish hats on and long beards, you know, because that's what they've seen in these two places. <laughs> so they were quite used to that. I mean, the, the shocker was really Jerusalem, which um, has changed in a very very dramatic way. I think it's got much, much shabbier and poorer and it's because partly it has got just much more ultra-Orthodox and many of them are economically inactive. They don't work, the men. They study instead. And the result is the tax base of that city is shrinking. They just cannot pay for basic upkeep. It was a... I I lived in Jerusalem for six months, 20 years ago and it wasn't the same place. The, the, you know, the infrastructure just feels as if it's sort of peeling and it's very shabby. Oh, that's very upsetting Um, because I I was enchanted by the place when I first went. That was a while ago. That's right. I mean, one of the world's great cities and it is being a out to fray. The old mayor, Teddy Colick, was always very, very careful to A, get tons of international money in and also to keep uh, make sure that secular Jerusalemites felt they had a stake in the city. Now there is an ultra-Orthodox mayor and the secular Jews are fleeing out of Jerusalem to these outside sort of satellite communities where they don't have to pay taxes in to subsidise those people as they will describe the religious. I mean, what is frightening is the extent to which secular Israelis talk about ultra-Orthodox Jews the way European societies 150 years ago talked about Jews, meaning they'll say they stick together, they don't do any work, they're parasites. I mean, terribly, almost anti-Semitic tropes are trotted out. The Edan Reichel project was founded four years ago. A fusion of Israeli, Ethiopian and East European sounds, all fronted by producer and musician Edan Reichel. He collaborates with first-generation and third-generation Israelis, fusing old and new in search of a sound that defines the Israel of the 21st century. The Jewish Community Centre for London is bringing him over to London for one night only at the end of May to perform at the South Bank. Dina Kraft caught up with him in his native Tel Aviv and started off by asking him what inspires his music. It's one of the most interesting multicultural nations. Um, we're still de- trying to define Israeli food or Israeli culture, Israeli art, um, Israeli mentality. You know, it's such a such a young uh, country, and every 10 or 15 years there is a new immigration that changes the face of the Israeli society. So I think. In our own way, in our in, in our unique way, we're trying to define the Israeli uh, music or or the music of of the Israeli streets. You can walk in the streets of Tel Aviv and think it's the super it's super uh, modern and and super western city uh, also you can go to to south israel and feel like you're in, in the third world israel itself it's like a bridge between old and new and ancient and modern and and how would you say that you mix the ancient and modern in your music first of all we are we're influenced by the the, um, the old school or biblical Hebrew, but also we as uh, Israeli youngsters, we play like with synths or like electronic music, so it's all mixed together.
tell us a little bit about how this all began at that boarding school where you met the Ethiopian students? After serving in the Israeli army, I was working as, as a counselor in a boarding school, which I guided their teenagers that were immigrated alone from the camps of Gondor, from the refugees camps of Sudan, from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Also kids from, um, from Russia. And I, it was the first time for me to see that how these kids that once they immigrate to Israel, they become Israeli, but they still stick to their own roots. And how did your work with those students lead you to finding their music and in turn finding your project? Um, by working with the, mostly with the kids that had identity problems, I wanted them to be proud of, the, of their own roots. I wanted them to teach me some of the melodies, like the, the traditional tribe songs. As a musician, it's 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 much more interesting to me to to be influenced by my own, you know, my own territory. Or you know, I could I could move to London or to 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 U.S. and to be like a jazz or pop or rock, you know, musician. But it's not me. You know, I'm Israeli, and this, these are my roots. My neighbors are my roots here. And how do you feel about uh, performing at the Queen Elizabeth Hall in South Bank in London at the end of May? I really hope to see non-Israeli and non-Jewish people in the audience to come and celebrate with us. This will mean for me a lot. Because I think we should uh, live not in uh, ghettos of, of Israeli or, or Jewish uh, communities. I think that we have a lot to share. We have a lot to a lot of good things to show the world and to our neighbors no matter where and I wish them to be proud of us to, to achieve to this moment and to celebrate the 60th anniversary Download a free track from the Eden Reichel project from the Sounds Jewish blog page and the JCC website. Interactive Noch. You can also get more information about the event. Joining Eden Reichel in London will also be the wonderful Achinoam Nini. It's really not to be missed. Eden described a very positive side to immigration in Israel there, a melting pot of East European, Ethiopian, and Russian cultures. Has immigration to Israel been a success story in your view? I think this is one of the remarkable aspects of Israel, that how fast it's done it. I mean, you think about America, and they've had 240 years or so in this game, and Israel's only had about 60 years. It is remarkable how fast and successful it's been. I mean, I remember in the early 90s, you'd go uh, to Israel, and on a street corner, you would see some wonderful Russian violinist who had been in the you know, Moscow Symphony Orchestra, now scratching out a living, busking. Now, that the, 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 in, in the space of just a, over a decade, that million or so Russians have been absorbed overwhelmingly very successfully. Yes, they're a Russian language. People only speak Russian, and they're a Russian language newspaper.
newspapers, etc. But to have done got as far as they have so quickly is amazing. It is one of the interesting, I think, sort of rebuttals uh, to those who would like to cast Israel as this somehow ethnically pure state. When you go there, just physically go and look at the faces, you see the most multicultural, multi-ethnic people. This is the only looking at Jewish Israelis. This is even before you count in the one-fifth of the country that is Arab. Uh, and the result is this new people, the Israelis, who do not look like Jews uh, elsewhere because they are this mixture. So I think this is one of a uh, feather in Israel's cap and something it, it, it does indeed advertise. I mean, it should celebrate and does. 60 years of Israel celebrated on this month's Sounds Jewish. Thanks to my guests, Jonathan Friedman from The Guardian and Daniela Pellet from The Jewish Chronicle and to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, goodbye. Shalom, shalom. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.